Straight from the hard, cold region of northeastern Pennsylvania. The podcast by coaches for coaches. Welcome to Bandbox Baseball with your hosts, Corey Nido and Paul McGloin. Now let's hit the field running. Welcome to another edition of Bandbox Baseball. This is Paul McGloin joined with Corey Nido. Corey, we talk all the time as coaches when we'll say to a kid who may be a little bit full of himself that nobody's bigger than the game or that you shouldn't think that highly of yourself and the game is bigger than you. But every once in a while you run across a player or a coach that has achieved so much they've actually transcended baseball and become bigger than the games themselves. I think this is the case we have right now with Skip Bertman and LSU. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to Skip. Uh, obviously, just looking at his accolades and his accomplishments over his illustrious career, really excited that he was able to join us for this episode of the podcast and just really excited to kind of hear what he has to say. It's going to take me forever to get through his background and his accolades. And he's really one of the greatest gifts we've received in the baseball coaching profession because not only did he do so much for the places where he's worked, but he's done so much for the rest of us as baseball coaches. It's a really exciting conversation I'm looking forward to. You can't really get anybody on this podcast from a baseball coaching perspective that has seen more or done more than Skip Burton. No, I agree. Uh, you know, no disrespect, obviously, to the wonderful coaches that we've had in the past. But, you know, as you mentioned, Skip is probably one of those few players and coaches that transcended the game and you could argue might be bigger than the game because of what he's been able to bring to the sport for such a long period of time. With that, let's bring him in, Coach Skip Bertman. Coach Bertman, thank you very much for joining us this evening. Oh, my pleasure. I was telling Corey a little while ago, uh, if I try to go through everything, it's going to take me forever, so I'm going to try to get through just the bullet points, the major thing. Played baseball at the University of Miami as an outfielder and a catcher. Uh, you received your BA in health and physical education from Miami in 1961 and your master's degree in 1964. Then you were the head baseball coach at Miami Beach High School from 1965 to 75 and had a tremendous amount of success there. 76 to 83, you became an assistant coach under the legendary Ron Frazier at the University of Miami, and then in 1984 to 2001, you were the head coach at LSU. You retired, you became the athletic director, and made a lot of successful hires, did a lot of phenomenal things for that institution before essentially becoming athletic director emeritus and still to this day being a large part of the LSU community. But I mean, you just look at the bullet points, Coach. I mean, it's unbelievable that your work with USA Baseball and leading team to a bronze medal in the 96 Olympics, at the same time having success again in the Olympics, and then you had 11 College World Series appearances, five national championships, seven SEC championships, an exceptional career record. You have the highest winning percentage in NCAA tournament history, two-time Baseball America Coach of the Year, five-time Collegiate Baseball Coach of the Year, seven-time SEC Coach of the Year. The list of Hall of Fames you were inducted to is unbelievable. And now, most recently, they have uh, installed a nice statue of you in what's become Skip Bertman Field at Alex Box Stadium. I said to Corey before we get on here, essentially, I feel like we have the Beatles of college baseball on the line tonight. (laughs) Oh, thanks a lot. Uh, That that doesn't matter, all of those uh, accolades. If I could... uh, 
impart any kind of information and help coaches like yourself or any listeners that are coaches. Uh, then that's it. That people helped me when I started, and uh, I'm just looking to help if I can. We're going to have some fun tonight. And that's why we started this podcast, Coaches. Our tagline is Goodbye Coaches for Coaches. And we bring out a coach every session. It's a free podcast where we just hope we can give back, like you said, the people that have helped us. Kind of a segue I had mentioned to you. I worked your last ever baseball camp in 2001 uh, when you retired. And to this day, I still am in touch with people that I met at that camp, some coaches. And it actually landed me a job years later because my last college job was at Okaloosa Walton Community College. It was a full-time job, which is now Northwest Florida State. The head coach right. who hired me, I had met while working your camp. Uh, yeah. so just goes to show you that you know getting out there and networking and learning from others can really do some wonders for you as a coach sometimes. Uh, yeah, that, well, <laughs> one of the things that, that you have to realize that uh, we're not uh, football, right. where you know people put a lot of uh, time and effort into publicizing football, particularly in a place like uh, Pennsylvania mm-hmm. or any of the uh, non sunbelt states, you know, where it's hard to get going early. Uh, as opposed to, you know, playing in Florida or playing here mm-hmm. in Louisiana. Uh, so, yeah, you got to work real hard and do what you're doing and, uh, you know, make an effort, you know, to go out at camps of the greatest. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a great way to network. Uh, other ways, of course, are getting to the clinics wherever they are. And uh, for about 20 years in a row, went to that New Jersey uh, be the best that you are clinic. Right. And that was a good one. And, uh, and of course I probably, I don't know, did a thousand clinics and, uh, you know, really enjoyed that and, uh, put some, I hope, you know, some information out there. I was never afraid to, uh, give all the information I had. I didn't think it would be, you know, used against me in recruiting or, Anything like that. I mean, uh, the game is 150 years old. Uh, None of us should think that we're reinventing the game or that we know some things that, you know, they they are everything and know so much more than somebody else. That's really ludicrous. Um, On the other hand, uh, you have a chance at this game, uh, meaning baseball, to really have an opportunity to get into the game much more than football or basketball where being bigger, stronger, faster, you know, makes so much more difference where, you know, guys that are college kids at 5'8 or 5'7 or 160 pounds can be great college players, and uh, if they don't make it to the big leagues and they only play a couple of years in pro ball, they probably still maxed out, you know, about as far as they uh, could. So the great news about baseball is just about uh, anybody can play starting at the youth league level and they put their uh, mind to it and their effort into it like anything else. They can get into high school ball and, of course, starting with, uh, you know, some good youth league baseball uh, like you do and mm-hmm. the coaches that are working with you. Uh, I think that's the way to go. And uh, then, of course, I wouldn't exclude playing other sports, of course, when you're young. I don't. I think that's good if you can play football and or basketball, not to mention, you know, other sports. Uh, that's not bad at all. I like that. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kids that play football are particularly, you know, good at uh, baseball. You know, they learn a tougher work ethic. So I like kids that have played other sports. 
Uh, do you find that to be true, you know, with the kids that you have? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, it's funny you should mention that because Pennsylvania football is king, and mm. you're you're never going to ever beat that. And I think there are coaches out there, unfortunately, that try to fight it. And uh, I tell kids all the time that we have, and as you know, coaches, travel ball has boomed in the last 20 years. I, I tell them I've been the biggest hypocrite in the world to tell you not to play three sports or not to play multiple sports. Play, play as many sports as you want. Funny that I'm saying this, but the advice I've given in the past is I do think there might become a time in your career where you may have to prioritize, and they'll say, what do you mean by that? And I'll say, well, you know, if you get to your freshman, if you've been playing multiple sports since you're a young kid, that's a great thing. And we all know, I mean, forget about the athleticism and all of the values you could develop as an athlete by playing multiple sports, but also how you can, as we know, work work well with others, teamwork, develop transferable life skills. But I'll say to them, when you become maybe a freshman or a sophomore, you might start to see the writing on the wall, and they'll say, what do you mean? And I said, well, I had a brother who played five years in the NFL. By the time you get to that sophomore year, you might say to yourself, well, I'm the starting quarterback on the football team, I'm receiving a ton of attention. I'm the seventh man on the basketball team. I really don't play a ton. And on the baseball team, I've been kind of platooned. You, you might kind of, if that makes any sense, it might kind of tell you, hey, what direction I should go in. So you might have to, at one point, try to place a priority of one over the other. But I'm, I, I have yet to have a college coach or a pro scout say that they don't want kids to play multiple sports. Oh, sure. Uh, LSU right now, uh, Coach Paul Maneri, uh has the safety, you know, from the football, you know, drafted kid. And when recruited, said, you know, you can play both sports. And, of course, he's out there right now playing baseball. And baseball's, uh, you know, tough sport. If you, you know, if you uh, lay off of it for a while, it takes some time to get your timing back and your rhythm going on offense and defense, or if you're a pitcher, you know, some time to get the arm loose and ready. But but for the most part, yes, playing uh, multiple sports uh, at an early age until, like you suggested, which, of course, is pretty obvious that at some time, you know, you'll know. <laughs> you'll yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's interesting you mentioned about speaking to all these events. I've seen you on multiple occasions. One of the things uh, that you're known for was taking over the LSU program and obviously making it this gold standard for college baseball. And I have a copy of that handwritten sheet you made when you first yeah. got to LSU of all of the things that needed to be changed and needed to be fixed. Right. So I was wondering if you could kind of take us from the process from where you received the program at LSU to where it was when you left it. Okay, I, I will tell you that, uh, that, Coach, but I don't want you to, or anybody uh, listening, I don't want you to think I'm boasting. I just want to give you some uh, uh, information. Uh, now, first thing is I was uh, ultra prepared uh, in the sense that I worked with Ron Frazier for eight years. Okay, we went to Omaha uh, six times. And I had a national championship and very close, uh, almost another one. And uh, But more than that, he showed me the other side of baseball, you know, your promotional side, that if you do a good job in promotion and we get some people out to watch the game, because the kids are such good kids, and they're not six foot five, and they don't weigh, you know, 240 pounds. They just look like everybody's, uh, you know, nephew or everybody's grandson. 
And uh, yet they're really good, uh, you know, playing at baseball uh, at the college level with an aluminum bat. So I was well prepared by Ron Frazier. Okay, God rest his soul. Uh, really did a good job. And then, of course, um, pretty obvious that Ron wasn't going to leave. You know, <laughs> you know, he uh, would have liked to be the athletic director. But, uh, he, you know, Howard Snellenberger, the football coach, you know, had other plans and bringing his athletic director. Mm-hmm. And football's king now in, in college in just about every part of the United States, mm-hmm. and uh, especially at places like LSU, uh, where you put pack in, you know, 100,000 people, you know, every Saturday. Naturally, it's the uh, big money maker, so that mm-hmm. all the rest of the sports can be funded. So uh, even the women, uh, you know, with Title IX have realized that you just can't be, you can't put football into that question. You right. know, there's more football players at LSU than there are female athletes, mm-hmm. you know, participating in nine sports. Well, anyway, I'm ready to go, and I come up here, and uh, I know what to expect. Now, I called uh, Ron Pope, you know, a good friend of mine, Mississippi State. Mm-hmm. At the time, uh, I called, uh, you know, half a dozen other coaches, and they said, yeah, you know, it's possible, maybe. All right, well, I came up, and uh, uh, we started a booster group. Okay, that's the first thing. Uh, people that were going to help me out a lot. First meeting, uh, they were shocked, stunned, and amazed because when they said, what do you need, coach? I said, well, we got to clean up the women's bathroom room and get us a, a baby changing table in both the men's and the women's bathroom. And of course, they looked at one another. <laughs> That's crazy. And I said, no, no, no. One day there'll be big crowds. And if you can't get mom here, you know, and she's not happy, then you don't have anybody. Because this is a sport for women and children of all ages, you know, maybe yeah. down to little four or three going on your playground, you know, all the way up to senior citizens. They love baseball. And uh, yet football can't give you that. So we started uh, 1983-84 with that list that you talked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, there were things, you know, just weren't done here. You know, I mean, there were no soap dishes or the showers didn't work. Right. Right. You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, about crazy things. And when you consider what we have now, it's kind of absurd. Well, but when I started, uh, I listed about 60 things on that list that you're you told that you're talking about, and all of them were were succeed, you know, successful in the first few years. And in the third year, uh, you know, we started, well, nobody, there was no attendance kept in there. It never cost anything to go to the game. So I put in a season ticket for $30, 35 home games for four family package for four people and ripped it out of a book and said, look, if you don't go, give it to somebody else. And it's the best value in town. And of course, uh, I had spoken, I should have said this earlier I had spoken, you know, to the uh, Kiwanis Club and the Rotary Club, and I got about 60-some-odd speeches in, and uh, it's something that I could do well, and I could tell some jokes or show them some other funny things, and of course I could get real serious and talk about baseball, and to talk, you know, uh, they would say, you know, when are you going to win the national championship? You know, that's what they asked Nick Saban, you know, in that first day he was here. And <laughs> 
And uh, he answered it. He was great. He said, uh, you know, uh, name the top five or six schools, and the people shouted out Notre Dame, Alabama, you know, now, of course, Clemson and Ohio State. And he said, boy, if we can be up amongst those schools, then maybe one year we'll get lucky and we'll win the national championship. And, of course, we did. Uh, when he was coaching mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, won a couple others until this year. They were, you know, 15 and 0 and mm-hmm. uh, blew everybody out with one of the great, uh, probably one of the great college teams of all time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's exciting. You know, you shouldn't fight football is the message here. Mm-hmm. Everybody, football's good. Mm-hmm. It's a good thing. Uh, yeah, it gets a lot of attention and, uh, but they're the best coaches, uh, uh, coach. You know, they put in the most time. You know, they check everything and have the most meetings. And generally speaking, they're, they're, you know, they do a good job. Okay, I would say, uh, you know, baseball coaches don't have to be as fastidious uh, as football coaches. You know, since, uh, you know, the mound is 60 feet, 6 inches, the bases are 90 feet apart, uh, your worst hitter hits ninth and your best hitter hits third or fourth. The first guy's the best runner. <laughs> I mean, you know, we know things about baseball that haven't changed, whereas in football you have to prepare for every opponent differently. So, uh, but getting back, sorry, getting back to uh, uh, LSU, uh, the first year, you know, we, we did pretty well, but it was very, very hard for the kids to understand, you know, what I was doing. You know, they were used to media, you know, being mediocre and mm-hmm. felt good about it. See, they didn't right. feel like they could win anything. And I explained to them that we're going to this place in middle America called <laughs> Omaha. And nobody had ever been there from Louisiana, no school, you know, had ever mm-hmm. been there. And, uh, you know, they would, hey, all right. They started to cheer. <laughs> oh, my God. And then they said, coaches on drugs like us. <laughs> <laughs> they just didn't believe, you know. That. And that was my... Uh, you know, what I had to do first, I had to get them to believe and have some self-confidence. And uh, the second year, we went to a regional, and naturally, when you go to those things the first time, you get beat. And uh, But in the third year, you know, we went to the regional, and you know, we won, and we went to Omaha, and naturally, it's hard to win the first time. You know, the kids don't believe they can. It's very hard to get them to on the first trip. Kind of like a Super Bowl, you know, you be there and lose first. And uh, anyway, I uh, enjoyed uh, the growth, but the, the number of people, me hustling, you know, from one meeting to another meeting, speaking about it, passing out, going out in my uniform, bringing kids with me, traveling to Mississippi, uh, you know, never stop, uh, you know, saying, telling them, you know, we're going to be national champs. And uh, while not everybody believed it, a lot of people caught on. Football team at this time was very mediocre to bad uh, at the first six or seven years that I was at LSU until actually, you know, Nick Saban came in. And, uh, you know, I was here, let's see, seven years before Nick came in. And in those seven years, they were never outstanding. And basketball was never outstanding at that time. A little, not much. And uh, baseball, I figured that's the one. And everybody came, and we started out with 20, 21,000 my first year uh, with San Diego Chicken, lots of promotions, <laughs> uh, you know, money scramble, uh, you know, used car night, 
uh, you know, 70 nights at the ballpark. You know, ran it like a minor league baseball program. People really uh, picked up on that. They they enjoyed that. And then, of course, uh, uh, you know, you had to win, you know, to right. really get them out there. And uh, like I say, the first year we we did win, but didn't wasn't enough to impress anybody. But the second year, you know, uh, when we went on the air and radio, uh, you know, that, that – uh, and uh, we won and uh, – you know, and I would say one handily and went to a regional and lost. But the third year, as I said, we, you know, we did really well. And everybody was excited and went to Omaha, you know, and they found out what Omaha was all about. And so, Coach, do you think that was pivotal? Because in 85 was your second year, and that was, unless I'm wrong, the first time LSU qualified for postseason play in 10 years. Well, it was actually the first time since 1976. So does that go from a meeting with boosters where you're saying, I have a vision, I think we can take this to this level, and then you go all of a sudden in your second year, you get to your postseason, and all of a sudden your third year, you get to Omaha. Now, did you find that it became easier for the supporters to buy in and believe that that could happen? Yeah, yeah. There, there's no doubt that, that winning you know, is is probably the best motivation success by your ball players and W's and L's. Uh, mm. that, that that yeah, that helped out a lot. Uh, people really, we went right back to Omaha the next year, and uh, people, you know, really were excited about that. Uh, mm. You know, they really loved to travel here, and uh, you know, they we did very very well, and they liked us in Omaha, meaning the fans, because my kids were you know well behaved and uh, you know very nice to people. Or, you know, I was part of the system. So the kids from Omaha picked up on that. We were kind of like the favorites, you right. know, for everybody. And uh, plus, you know, our fans uh, stayed the longest, spent those money. <laughs> and finally, when we went to Omaha for, like you said, we went 11 times. You know, finally, after five, five times, uh, there, were, there were all these uh, – motor homes that they had never seen. You know, Omaha had never seen this. And then, of course, there was, you know, Jambalaya, you know, that was uh, right. opened up in Omaha, you know, and never, you know, in Boudin. <laughs> Crawfish up to face. Well, that, that was important, though, because uh, it was really good that uh, we got that chance. But I think what's really important is we went from 20, about 23 to 46 to 67 to 93 to 120, and, you know, kept on going, say, every single year. Like, attendance meant a lot to me, okay? Mm-hmm. Now we uh, have been the leaders in attendance for about 30 years now, yeah, mm-hmm. straight years. And, uh, you know, like Paul draws, you know, about average about 10,000 per game, and most SEC teams are right in there, you know, like Arkansas, Mississippi State, you know, right in there, Mississippi. Uh, and some other schools are probably real close. Naturally, nobody's there, you know, from Penn State, right. like you said, you know, yeah. you know, the University of Pennsylvania, you know, Wharton School of Business, you know, they're not there for those from those schools in baseball, like you said, big football, and of course they can play some good basketball. But uh, now you can recruit a kid uh, from the uh, east you know, from mm-hmm. Pennsylvania, because he plays travel ball, and he might be in Jupiter, Florida, say, in his junior year. Mm-hmm. And you know he's good, and uh, 
everybody there is real good, my God. You know, it's so easy to recruit, you know, now that uh, just a question of, you know, you get six, the other team gets six. You know, you can't get them all because the scholarship limit is so low. But um, now uh, this is good, the travel ball, because now kids from uh, uh, Westchester, New York, kid got a scholarship uh you know old dominion okay uh some other kids besides kids at lsu you know when i went down and watched uh, several of these, uh, you know, wood bat, perfect game uh, tournaments, you know, found out that, uh, you know, kid would fly in, pitch, and then fly out. And, of course, that's, you know, enough. And, that's, you know, they couldn't be seen, you know, because the signing day was April 15th. You know, <laughs> right, right, right. And a lot of teams haven't even played yet, you know, mm-hmm. yet alone signed the guys. And uh, because it's so now ability to make some money, like I'd say Paul Maneri spends a little, probably a little over $3 million, maybe three point three or $4 million, uh on the program, you know, which takes charter aircraft on the road, mm-hmm. which has a beautiful weight room and all kinds of, uh, you know, pitching labs and hitting labs and, right. you know, about everything. There's nothing that they don't have, right? right. And, uh of course, Paul is very, like most SEC coaches, very high paid. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, whoa, very high right, paid. Right, right, right. Football-like, yeah. you know, and uh, uh, at least basketball now, you know, for these baseball coaches. But in order to do that, Paul's got to win. Right. And he's got to recruit well, and he's got to coach him well. Mm-hmm. Of course, he's got a you know, staff of, you know, 12 or 13 people. And, uh, you know, it's crazy compared to, you know, we started with, you know, we started with just uh, Smoke and myself. And, uh, <laughs> and that, that, but but if you work real hard, the kids pick up on you, you know, and it's really, it's not how much you know, it's how much you care. And the, the kids knew that I cared about them and I cared about baseball. I cared about school work. I cared about off the field problems if that was going to be. I mean, you know, uh, you'd have to answer to me, you know, if you weren't uh, your best student and your best behavior off the field. And uh, that, that they appreciate that. They like that. You know, one of the things I enjoyed most in coaching was when I'd say to them, oh, yeah, I do this so at least four times a year. I'd say, uh, call your parents. Don't ask for any money. <laughs> and uh, when you they ask how you doing, you tell them, I'm doing great, Mom. I'm doing great, Dad. Even though your girlfriend just broke up with you, even though you're hitting below 200 or your ERA is over six, because all they want is for you to be happy. Right. Make your parents happy. Give them something back. Give of yourself. Be big enough to do that. When the kids uh, did, uh, you know, do that, because uh, I really did do that, they uh, also appreciated uh Motivation, uh, probably had edge uh, over other coaches uh, in that I could motivate. I could tell them a story, a different story, uh, every night or every afternoon before, uh, you know, 70 different ball games with 70 different stories, and then meet a kid, you know, years later. I mean, years later. And uh, they laugh and they say, uh, remember the story about Roger Bannister? I said, yes. Coach, I know it too. I've heard you tell him breaking the four-minute mile. I use that story all the time. 
Yeah, sure. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it was my first story, and yeah. it had to do with about breaking barriers and believing that right. you can hit, you know, four for four. You can pitch a shutout. Yeah. And uh, Roger Bannister believed he could, and then, boom, as soon as he did it, everybody did it. Right. And pretty much that's what happened here in baseball. As soon as we went to Omaha, other teams from LSU, again, yeah. Mississippi, from Louisiana and Mississippi, got mm-hmm. to the College World Series. <laughs> Amazing. And, That's funny because uh, I, I mentioned to you about the Beatles of baseball. My other one I thought about was this, Coach. Like we're told that Jeff Bezos on Amazon is the richest person in America. And I thought, you know what? There's a way for Skip Bertman to be the wealthiest person in America. If we can find a way to draw a royalty fee on everything baseball coaches have, sto- have stolen from you. <laughs> well, that's, your quote of the day sheets, I have them in the dugout for oh, practice man. and games. I have a ton of your stories. I tell them before. Shoot, even the way you organize that camp of 400 kids is the way I organize yeah. camps. You know, imitations is a serious form of flattery. And there's so many things I've stolen from you. So I got to ask you why we're here. How and why did you become so big on motivating players, showing them video of themselves succeeding? When I worked the camp, you yeah. showed me the you showed me the Braveheart video that you merged right. with highlights. Right. Corey, you got to see this. Good. It had Mel Gibson coming in a battle, slicing at a guy, and then it cut to an LSU guy slicing a home run. Yeah. And, 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 I, and I, was, I was like, this is amazing. And, and I said, like, so I think to myself, how did, Coach, how did you get into that whole vein of I want to motivate kids and I want to show them pictures of themselves succeeding? Well, you got to give the information. Uh, I, I knew a lot about sports, not just baseball. Um, I had read, I had uh, you know read a lot more books than the average baseball coach, but not just on baseball. And then I said to myself, I knew, you know, I read books on teamwork and storytelling is you know, right up there with the big one. You know, mm-hmm. kids want to see it on the screen or hear it in a huddle. You know, at the perfect time before the game or, or, you know, at another perfect time. And, uh, you know, if you rehearse the story and you're ready with story and it has meaning, you know, the story, meaning if you win, say, Friday and Saturday and you're afraid the kids will let down, I'd say, let's say that was Rocky Marciano Day in 1956, you know, boxer 49-0. and zero. could take a punch, take two, but he'll give you four. And uh, nobody ever beat him, and, of course, had 41 knockouts. Well, that was my spiel. You know, don't let up, you know, like Rocky mm. Marciano. you got to go. All right, and, uh, of course, it was, deep, you know, it was a little better than that than I just described. But I like the motivation. I realized that it worked with the kids, you see. And then, of course, that made me have to go harder at it. Uh, Nick Saban was a good coach for me. Now, I was a national, I was the athletics director for five years when Nick was here. And, uh, of course, he, he liked the way I coached baseball, came to a lot of games. Uh, he liked, uh, he played baseball, let's see, uh, Kent State. He played baseball. And uh, he was a good shortstop, and yeah, I can see that. He knows a lot about sports, uh, uh, Saban. Anyway, uh, he says something that I've always said, and it's really not everybody, Coach, wants to sell. You know, not everybody wants or cares as much Mm -hmm. as you do. And you have to work hard to get these guys to care as much as you do. And um, you can't let up, see, ever. And Nick was one of those guys that was 24 hours a day, you know, 365 days. And I was pretty much a smaller version of that for baseball. You know, I would, uh, you know, it had to be done in a certain way. 
and they, you know, had to learn about the law of average. It's not a principle. It's not a theory. It's a real law. And if we do this, we have a higher percentage, see, over the long haul, not just in this game. Uh, if you throw this pitch, see, over the long haul, if you get it there, because of the law of average, it's going to work for you. And uh, those things meant a lot to me, and uh, I enjoyed competing. Oh, another thing that I brought up here with me was uh, signaling in the pitcher <laughs> for the catcher to get, you know, the pitch call. And I didn't realize, but when I came out here, it was like a big deal. And we played Georgia Tech uh, one year, <laughs> and they brought guys with computers. I'm wow. God that out there that we're going to feel these signs, you know. And mm-hmm. I said, well, we win already. You know, if, if the, you're going to feel like that about it, you know, we win, win already. So now everybody gives signals, you know. And now right. in the FCC, they call them in with a, uh, an actual earpiece and microphone, mm-hmm. you know, like the NFL does, you know, with mm-hmm. their quarterbacks and coaches. So it was great run for me. It got better and better and better. And, you know, you learned how to win. You know, it was hard for us. Went home four times. And either I screwed it up or the kids weren't ready. But uh, we kept time, though. We just blew through everybody. And then we won. Well, we, we didn't get there in uh, 92. So we won in 91. Then we won again in 93. And, uh, it's, you know, sport is just a baseball tournament, you know, and anything can happen. You know, the best team doesn't always have to win. Certainly the best coach team doesn't necessarily have to win, you see. Uh, in that short amount of time, like a World Series or the best three out of five, my God, you know, it's, it's very difficult for the big leagues to really maintain and say that, uh, you know, we have the best team, we're going to win. And that's crazy, you know. And uh, another thing with, like, the officials, you know, I'd say to them, um, you know, these guys are just ordinary guys. And, of course, when I started, they weren't as good as they are today, you know. We were lucky to have two guys, one of them that knew the rules, and now there's three guys, and they're really outstanding. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, of course, they get paid a lot more. Uh, And, uh, you know, large crowds uh, at at the school allow for this to happen, and uh, the officials are real good. But I'd always say to the kids, even now, I would say to them, if I were coach, if you expect these guys to call every single one correctly, meaning 120 pitches, like that's 240 pitches, Mm -hmm. every play at first, every play at second and third, without making a mistake in judgment. You're crazy. <laughs> insane. You think that when the guy misses the call, it's going to benefit you. So I always said to them, look, there are going to be missed calls. It's part of the game as it is today. And the let's be ahead by four runs when the guy makes the call, you know, or misses the call. You know, let's be ahead, you know, by four runs when the law of average catches up on the nine-hole hitter, you know, hits a three-run homer, and that's his first one of the year. Mm-hmm. You know, let's be ahead. when they, let's, let's understand, you know, these things that can happen. And, yeah, let's, you've got to coach them. You know, you got to work with them every day. I don't want to come on too strong here, but I would uh, coach them. It wasn't up to my coaches to coach them. I mean, I coached every phase. 
pitching, hitting, infield, outfield, base running. Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel like I knew how to win at mm-hmm. this level uh, better than a lot of guys that I coached against. Now, uh, when pro ball, uh, you're you know less apt to make a difference. Big leagues, you're really less apt to make a difference. Uh, you know, it's not like the manager actually tells them how to hit. You know, and they, though they do have fine coaches, you know, the talent level, you know, wins at all levels. Okay, you know, that's what the law says, the law of average. Talent wins out. Uh, this ball team um, from LSU that was 15-0 and 0 and beat the Dickens out of uh, Oklahoma. First, uh, Georgia, you know, a top-four team, and then Oklahoma, you know, the fourth seed, and then, of course, Clemson, you know, the number two seed, and uh, beat them to death. And there, 16 guys mm-hmm. were invited to pro camps. Mm-hmm. See, and they never had serious injuries. See, they were very fortunate. The law mm-hmm. worked on their behalf. On the other hand, their quarterback was a high percentage quarterback. So if you have a high percentage pitcher, and I take him out to the mound, and I've studied your team, and I have reasonable defense that had a lot of grounders, a lot of fly balls, and could make all the plays, then I'm going to beat you. Most of that time, well, that's what I tried to do. And uh, I think a lot of them, I, I outworked the other guy. I think a lot of times, I, I'm not saying I outsmarted him. I, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that, uh, you know, my kids were better prepared by working harder uh, than the other guy's players. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, because we were talking about the phenomenal program you built, and we've all been in this position, whether you're a high school coach taking over a program for the first time, a little league coach who's a dad taking over a program, or in this case, a college coach. What advice would you give to coaches who get into a new position and take it over? What would you tell them about building a program from the ground up? Well, uh, the first thing I would tell them is to be yourself. Uh, you know, don't try and be me or Greg Maddox or anybody else in baseball. You know, be yourself that you bring a lot of talent and gifts, uh, you know, as a coach. I would say to him, go to the clinics, buy the videos, read the book. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, nobody knows everything about it. And you can always pick stuff up, one or two things, you know. And uh, as I said earlier, show them how much you care. You know, don't just show them how much you know. You know, show them how much you care. Uh, make sure that teamsmanship, you know, a lot of a lot of team-building exercises, a lot of team-building stories. Uh, and uh, you should know the names I'm not, you know, I, I knew the names of a thousand people by their first names, you know, because I had a big giant booster group, you know, with three to four hundred people. You know, they what they want is access, and of course they would get a lot of access to the players, the girls, meaning, you know, we'd bring them out, and you know, they they like that. Uh, mm-hmm. Make sure you get your find out who's big in your community and give them lots of access mm-hmm. to your team. Coach, going back to the College World Series a little bit, before your time at LSU, you were with Miami, and you're part of one of the greatest plays in the tournament. They called it the Grand Illusion, the phantom pickoff attempt <laughs> against Wichita State. Can you kind of just dive into where you came up with that idea? Here's what happened. Dave Scott, uh, who was a uh, coach that I had brought in, a volunteer coach that I had brought in, uh, he was in uh, the junior college tournament in Florida, at Lakeland, Florida, a 
at Joker Martian Field, which is the Detroit Tigers. So he saw a junior college team from West Palm Beach. It's the Bob Shaw that was the coach, you know, former big leaguer, you know, run this play. And, of course, the play is, is that he stepped off and he faked, you know, as if he was really throwing. And because you did it the right time, meaning, you know, you're, you know, hyperset, the guy would dive back. And because he dove back, you know, he couldn't really tell that he threw it or not. And the first baseman would indicate, uh, oh, shucks, you know, I, I you know, I you know, take off running down the right field line. Second baseman would run, the right fielder would run. And then Omaha, you know, we had a Oakland's there at the time. And the bullpen people scattered because they were in on it. I never thought that I'd really run that play. But Ron Frazier, God rest his soul, as I said earlier, he didn't you know, he didn't have much ego that way. Uh, he says, Skip, you do the nuts and bolts and the baseball. I'm going to raise money. And that's what he told everybody. And that's the way it was. So we were practicing at the boys' club. And uh, Dave Scott went to California and saw another team do that. And he said, Skip, got to run this play. I said, yeah, but you look like an idiot if the guy doesn't run the second. <laughs> And I said, I don't think so. But I'll tell you what, I'll humor you saying that we're going to play Wichita State for the uh, national championship. And uh, although we're going to play them on the way to the national championship, not in this particular game. Well, they had three guys with 70 stolen bases or more. Well, so the first thing is we're only going to do this if these three guys are leading off first. And then you have to step off and fake several times, okay, and see what happens. You can't just do it the one time, right? And uh, they, you know, you got to step off and throw to first base. You know, you got to step off and throw to first base. Now, you can't get them, of course, but when you do that at the right time, well, you know, there you had a first base coach that would have had on crooked, you know, ball, ball player. It had to be at, the, you know, dusk when it was hard to see, you know, just when it was turning dark and all that. And I never thought all those things could really happen. But uh, Gene Stevenson's, uh, the coach from Wichita State, his brother, Phil Stevenson, had uh, 86 of 90 stolen bases. Yeah. Wow. You don't, you don't forget things like that. Yeah. And, of course, there were no rules at that time, and you play as many games as you want. And Wichita State, you know, played about, you know, 80 or 90 games. So they had these monster stats. Well, anyway, uh, they get on and like Casper Zach, you know, pitching this ball. <laughs> you know, went to <laughs> laughing because he stepped off and he threw to first. And Stevenson, with his huge 14-foot lead, had to really hustle to dive back. And then he looked in the dugout, you know, as if to say, come on, coach. I mean, my God. And, of course, the coach got a big kick out of it. And, uh, you know, that's why I never thought he'd run. So we did. We singled it in. Dave Scott singled the bullpen. And, uh, you know, everybody was in on it. And he faked it. And I remember saying to myself, run, Phil, run. <laughs> and he got up and he ran. And, of course, they threw to second. And the umpire uh, told the catcher came back laughing. And I said, what's the matter, Nelson? He says, what's funny? He says, the, the umpire said to me, hey, tell me what happened on that play in case I got to press <laughs> I got to find out. 
because you know I didn't tell anybody, and uh, you know nobody knew about it except us. And since then, you know the play's been run quite a bit. As a matter of fact, when I went to the clinics, everybody asked me about it, and I would tell them you'd see a lot of coaches throw their notebooks down, you know, because they had been running the play. And they, you know, like 16 times it would work, you know, 14 times in a row. And, you know, it was brand new. Now, of course, it's old hat. Yeah, that was a good, that was a highlight. You know, that's uh, the best time I've ever had in coach. But that was a highlight. Uh, you mentioned the attendance again, how LSU was at the forefront of just drawing attendance and has been for the last 30 years. Kind of a segue with that. Uh, I've coached in the Northwoods League. I've coached in the Cape Cod League. And one of my friends I was speaking with today coaches the Brewster Whitecaps. Yeah, I told him that I was going to be speaking with you tonight. He said, can you ask him a question for me? Because I'm, I'm dying to get his take on that. And I said, sure, go ahead. He said, LSU basically created that first cathedral of baseball and everybody else followed suit with, you know, we want to create big facilities. We want to draw a lot of people. And his experience now in the Cape is that you'll see kids showing up to a, a field in the Cape and unfortunately not be impressed because it's not as nice or not as good as what they're used to in college. And those same kids, whether it be LSU, whether it be Mississippi State or any school in the SEC for that matter, those kids maybe could get drafted in the fifth or sixth round but choose to go back to college because they're realizing this may be the best experience of my life and playing at these big stadiums that are better than what I'm going to see in the minor leagues. I'm playing in front of more people now than I'm going to play at a high A team in the Midwest. And how would you advise those guys and prepare those guys to go from playing in great facilities in front of big crowds to going to minor league ball where you're playing on maybe not so great facilities well, in front of small crowds. Yes, uh, you know, I want to tell them, you know, I'm going to tell them a few things, but what I'm going to tell them, you know, right now, Matt, uh, is because when I started, you know, that we didn't have good facilities and really nobody right. had much of anything. You know, now it's just unreal. And uh, I did mention that Paul spends about 3.2 or 3 million, but he makes mm-hmm. over 3.5 or 6 million, say, in attendance. Mm-hmm. So he makes money. All right, that money then is reinvested back into the baseball program. So if Mississippi State has something or Arkansas that he doesn't have yet, he makes sure he gets it. Right? And there's not so there's nothing. Every machine that you could possibly have or every expense been uh, reached. And uh, yes, you're never going to play even in Double A. You're never going to play in a park better than LSU, and you're never going to play in front of more people even in Triple A mm-hmm. um, than you play here. And until you go to the big leagues. You know, right. you'll never play in front of more people. So a lot of kids, come and, and the people, I, I, I like that, that when they come back, because what it says is they learn something from you. I, I like when they're, this happened uh, often. I loved it when they were drafted after their senior year and they didn't go to pro ball. <laughs> they said, hey, I'm not going to the big leagues. You know, come on, I'm, I know too much about it. And they went, got their master's degree or they went to work somewhere. So tell uh, the guy, uh, you know, that, yeah, our place and uh, most of the teams are better stadiums uh, than anything in Cape Cod, which, of course, is you know, kind of low level. And, uh, you know, I mean, the ball fields, of course, the playing is fine and the coaching is fine. You know, I don't think the weather's great necessarily, but the, uh, you know, the coaching is, is wonderful. And uh, I'm all for the Cape, but it's not nearly as good as these schools that have big uh, high budgets like we do.
So we kind of transitioned a little bit. You became the athletic director at LSU for quite some time. What was the the biggest difference when you took that job opposed to, you know, just overseeing a baseball program? Now you're overseeing an athletic department in one of the most premier conferences in the country. I was uh, very popular because of all the speeches and because I remembered names. You know, I've had, you know, courses and read many things. I can remember, you know, names and faces. All right, and uh, I was very popular, okay, and they wanted someone who could put in. LSU was like the only school that didn't have a seat license, you know, where you got to pay money to buy the ticket, and uh, they needed somebody that could put that in without having his house burned down. <laughs> somebody crashed their car through your living room. I, I could do that. And, uh, you know, I explained and showed how to do it. I, I said earlier, I knew a lot about sports. I knew which coaches could coach when I was a baseball coach. You know, I didn't have to be DCD. Uh, the AD for me was a cheapskate. And, uh, you know, he's a good guy, but they thought he was running through the Depression years. and You know, he was trying to save money on other sports than football and basketball and baseball. And, and that's not the way to do it. The way to do it is to pay attention so our softball coach, you know, can grow her program. And she draws 2500 a game, which is way over the national average. I mean, that much might be 400. And uh, so I knew a lot about it, again, from Frazier and from reading uh, leadership books that I had read. And they needed me, LSU, uh, to, to do this. I was going to go on a speaking circuit. Dale Brown had a play, basketball coach, had blazed a trail for me, an excellent speaker. And then, you know, they, they needed it. You know, they had a little trouble replacing Joe, you know, the former guy. And uh, you know, they didn't get a lot of uh, applications, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was hard to get a pool of good people. And so they took me as like a compromise guy, but at least a guy that would make everybody happy. See? And, of course, I did that immediately. Uh, you know, I showed the, uh, the coaches that weren't good. I said, look, you got just one more year next year, you know, to show me something. And they said, what? You got to win? Soccer? <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah. And, uh, and pretty much uh, the second year, after the second year, I fired a lot of coaches and got real coaches. These were club, low-paid coaches. And uh, so we, we went to most NCAA tournaments. We had 20 teams. Now there's 21 at LSU. And all 20 went to NCAA postseason play, you know, my last year and the year before. And then the first year of the new AD and so on because they were, you know, on the other hand, you have to give them some money. You got to pay them. Right. And you got to hold them responsible. And they got to manage their program. You got to teach everybody in your in your athletic department about sports because you know, your business manager doesn't know anything about sports. And uh, you know, got to say, listen, Mark, uh, you handle gymnastics and golf. And you know, when they need something, they'll to you first. And let's see if you could get it for them. And you learn a little bit about so you can be an AD. Well, you know now, uh, you know Dan Radakovich at Clemson is a super, you know AD. Uh, he worked at LSU for five years with me, four years with me. And uh, Eddie Nunez is in New Mexico. Uh, Herb Vincent's, uh, you know, is with the SEC. Many others have stepped up 
and uh, some have retired, and new coaches were brought in, and they're real good, too. So, yeah, I, I want everybody to win and everybody to be successful, but that's true. I want physics, biology, English, history, you know, to be successful. But I also want volleyball to be successful. See, I want the kids to understand that if you care, okay, so you could put this up at Burger King or McDonald's or Wendy's, uh, you care about being a good server here. See, that'll make all the difference in the world for customers. Now, if you look like you're bored and you don't care, see, they'll pick up on it. Right? And, of course, the same way with coaching. you got to show them that you care. And uh, so I was able to do that, and uh, I also raised a lot of money and was able to, you know, recruit a lot of people and do a lot of different things that were never done before. And we had two national football champions. We went to the Final Four men the first time since 1954 and women went five times to the final four and we got a women's program that was built up and I like that and uh, you know volleyball won and everybody won now were they successful as baseball uh, you know five national no but like you said the definition of the success uh, be the best you can be try your best make yeah. everybody understand that so you know you don't have to put it all in got to manage your program, today, and that's a big thing. You've got a lot of baseball coaches can't manage their program. You know, I'd be remiss without mentioning, back in 99, before you got into the administrative position, Baseball America voted you one of the top two college baseball coaches of the 20th century. Just what does that honor mean to you? Well, that one meant a lot to me. Rod Dato, you know, the ultra, ultra successful coach at USC, who coached for a dollar a year, uh, who had, you know, he's a, he was a very wealthy, but star trucking, and uh, he would uh, fund the scholarship, and the limit, you know, was, there was no limit, you know, when I started, and then it was, he went to, you know, 21, and then it was 16, it was 19, 16, 13, and then as it is today, 11.7, but he, so he won, uh, I love this guy, and boy, is he good, great storyteller, wonderful coach, okay, hang on his coattails anytime, all right, <laughs> but, but uh, did it when it was much easier than it is today. Like, for instance, Paul Maneri's a very, very, very good baseball coach. But so is everybody else now. You know, he has great facilities, but so is everybody else now. Mm-hmm. You know, he ends up uh, with his coaches down at, the, you know, some super, you know, uh, wood bat tournament. And other coaches there from the schools. I mean, there's nothing that you could do. I could outwork him at least. I could do some things. You know, I could out-train the other guy, you know, by repetition. Uh, today, everybody's pretty good. What's your greatest moment in coaching, Skip? And the answer is the 80th birthday party that I had a couple years ago where uh, we were asking all the players to come back. And, I mean, there were hundreds of guys and with their wives and with their children. And they told some stories, some of them funny and some not so funny. Uh, some <laughs> I'm too proud of and some not so you know proud of. If I could turn the clock back, this is really important here. If I could turn the clock back, which can't. But if I could turn it all the way back to high school, where we were all big winners, state champions, and so on, I'd want to first apologize to any umpire, any assistant coach, 
any player, trainer, or anybody in the dugout, any fan, if I wasn't as pleasant as I should have been, I hurt some kids' feelings as I was growing as a coach. And uh, I think these kids really liked me at the 80th party, but there were kids that I really leaned on. Uh, on the other hand, I watched um, Bobby Knight on television, basketball coach in Indiana, of course, and uh, with three national championships. And, and 20 years, he had a problem with uh, Miles Brand, you know, fired him, so he wouldn't come back to Indiana. But on this day, uh, because of uh, Isaiah Thompson and their great players uh, that he's had that were all going to be there, they made him come back, and he did. And, of course, he had like a 10, 12-minute standing ovation. You know, they were so excited. The players hugged me. I think that's what I went through on the 80th party. And uh, whenever we have a reunion, you know, I think I go through a lot of that. I mean, it's great to see the kids and their children. Now there are four players on this year's LSU baseball team whose father played for me. Wow. Going back 20 years ago when I was down at your camp, uh, I had met your wife, Sandy, and she's an absolute sweetheart, very courteous, very hospitable. And you know, I was 23 years old, pretty much just starting, and I can't believe how much time she took to stand there and talk to me about you know, living in Pennsylvania and coming all the way down there for the camp and things like that. So how long have you, been, you guys been married? All right, uh, tomorrow uh, we're going out for our anniversary. It is the 59-year anniversary. Yeah. A happy early anniversary. That's amazing, and congratulations. But this kind of speaks to the question I have for you. You know, you've given us so much to think about tonight, but you also mentioned about when you mentioned Saban about how much he works and about how how much you work to get LSU where it was. And, you know, in my travels, I've been a Division One assistant coach, and I know that you can work 70, 80 hours a week. So every picture I see, you guys have tons of blessings your way. You guys are happy and healthy. What advice would you give the coaches about trying to balance your life of coaching and your life with your family? Because you and I both know that there are a lot of coaches, unfortunately, it doesn't work out because you spend so much time away from home. What would you say to those coaches? Well, number one is I wouldn't apologize to the wife. You know, <laughs> I spent away. Let me tell you why. Oh, you know, I go to a, a Hall of Fame, you know, and I'll here in Louisiana because one of my players was inducted or Les Miles, a football coach that I hired, was inducted. And I went up and I heard, a, you know, a coach that was also inducted apologize to his wife for all the football coach for all the time that he spent. Listen, there are marriages with our service men and women where the husband goes away for six months or eight months or 10 months or comes back and then goes back. Okay, there are police officers, firefighters, you know, that might have, like firefighters, you know, work 48 hours. Uh, there are other guys that are high priority in business or doctors, okay, that might be on call a lot. All right, I, I, I worked hard at it. My wife knew what she was getting into, see? Mm -hmm. And I did the best I could. Like I said, I'd like to go back and apologize you know, <laughs> to my kids and my, to my wife and to lots of people for specific times where I wish I should have could have done something, but I didn't. You know, I wasn't, uh, you know, lost and I wasn't as cordial as I should have been. Okay, you know, coming back home, you know, with my children. Um, yeah, I'd like to have that uh, back. But for the most part, um, you're you're right. Uh, coach, my, my wife is a sweetheart. She was great for me in baseball. She was great hosting the other coaches that came down and wives. And 
she was great as an AD's wife and ran them uh, stuff in the suites in her football, ran their camp, uh, you know. <laughs> and you were there, you know, she was in charge of concessions, my wife. That's and right, that's correct. <laughs> she did a big league job, you know, on the sessions because she knew how that, that, that meant a lot to me to do it right. One of the things that I did, you know, was a secret or what they call secret fan. Okay, and he would go into the concession and see how long it took or if the hamburger was done right. If you're in the Marines, you know, the one thing you come back with is a tremendous pride, you know, about the Marines. Okay, not just anybody, but a Marine. Okay, I think that's wonderful that they do that. I think that's great. And, of course, you're a Marine for life. I think that in anything you do, Okay, I want to be remembered as being a firm, fair, consistent guy that worked, you know, real hard, but also had a lot of fun. It was very important for me uh, to let the kids be themselves, okay, and for lots of funny things to happen, uh, and for me to laugh along with them. That was very important to me. It was important for me to bring in uh, the community to talk to the team on Sundays or sometimes other games, not to motivate them, just to, to talk mm-hmm. and tell them why you failed and why you succeeded. And, of course, they, then you give them a baseball signed by everybody, and they put it on their desk with pride for the next 25 years. Those things were important to me. And I've had some great moments, like you, I said, the 80th party. My worst moment in coaching it was 1989, where I blew it big time. And um, I did, you know, I wanted to win the national championship. I wasn't just satisfied going to Omaha. And I had a great pitcher. I don't know, well, you know, one of the great, I had the Heisman Trophy winning pitcher, Ben McDonald. And we were going to play Texas with Cliff Gustafson. Of course, they were really good. And they had Dan Dissendorfer, who was a really good college pitcher. All right. And I figured if I could pitch Dan in this game and win, then he could pitch the, if I can get him out of there, he could pitch in a championship game. Okay. And that was a mistake. I shouldn't have done that. Uh, you know, I hurried him, say, from his last start. And uh, they, you know, when he had a little bit of a blister, okay, and, of course, we had, you know, they didn't have any trainers or doctors in Omaha at that time. And uh, so we did the best we could, you know, with that. But um, that was a bad break, you know, mm-hmm. for all of us, especially Ben. And uh, I should have pitched Curtis Laskanik, who really would a great job. And what is he also pitched in the big leagues, who would have uh, stretched it out. And if I wanted, I could have brought Ben in, you know, to close it out. But uh, anyway, that was my worst moment. That was a big mistake because uh, I'm positive Oskanek was a choice now, and I was wrong. Coach, we always try to end our podcast with these questions that we've identified. We call them the bandbox inquisition, kind of a rapid fire to get in your head a little bit. So if you don't mind, I'll start off with the first one, and Corey will follow me. As a coach, how do you define success? Be yourself, try real hard, and show them how much you care. And then when the kids realize how much you care and they go do their best, you're successful. You kind of mentioned uh, your greatest moment in coaching was your greatest moment in coaching was the 80th uh, birthday party because I had so much fun there. There were probably (laughs) 600 people and, uh, you know, from around the community as well as, you know, a couple of hundred players. And, uh, yeah, that was a great time for me. And I just sat there. Everybody did anything. I didn't organize or do anything. And everybody got uh, My Polk was there. You know, he flew down. Yeah, we asked the Polkster to come on down. <laughs> yeah, 
he's a good friend. What's the best piece of advice you could give to another coach? Well, the best piece of advice I'd give to another coach is uh, baseball is different, you know, than the other sports. You know, the defense puts the ball in play. Football, you know, you start the same 11 players. If nobody's hurt, basketball, you do the same thing, start five guys. But in baseball, every day you start only nine with a DH and a different pitcher. And that pitching is most important. And if I was given some advice to another coach, I would say, you know, be team-oriented, but make sure the pitchers get enough coaching because they're, you know, much more important than your left fielder. You mentioned your worst moment in coaching. Yeah, yeah. That was a, no, don't, don't do it again. Move on. <laughs> no. So, so what, what, did you, what did you learn from it? I mean, you, know, you, you said now oh, you realize well, that. I learned. Right. That's good. Yeah, you're right. What I, I didn't mention that. What I did learn from it was um, I thought I had to have my best pitcher out there, and I really didn't need Ben, see, for that game. I really did. Um, as, as I know now, see. And Laskanik, you know, would have been the logical. He was much more rested. I uh, could have got him out of there. He's a relief pitcher, but he could have gone six innings, you know, for sure. And uh, anyway, that was the yeah, boy. And uh, that won't happen. That didn't happen again. What excites <laughs> me about coaching? Uh, the eighth and ninth innings of a ball game, mixing it up with the players calling the pitches calling a steal or hit and run or take, you know, at the right time, calling pitch out at the right. Yeah, I, that, that excited me the most because that gave you the quickest reward. You know, I mean, it was, right. it was right. instantaneous, see, and that excited me the most. You know, the most difficult or challenging part of being a coach is managing your team and your home life. Like, I watched Nick Saban, you know, he was at work. When I was AD and I pulled up, his car was already there. And I came in at 8 o'clock, but he was already there. And I'd leave at 5 or 6, and his car was still there. And he had uh, two, you know, high school, junior high kids, you know, at that time. Uh, there's no way, you know, that there was enough time, you know. But it, but but his wife is a doll, and she handled it well. You know what I mean? Like, she sat in with it and did that well. That's the most challenging part for uh, a coach, putting in the time with your men, you know, or, or, or ladies, if you coach softball, putting in the time and then putting in the time with your junior high school kid or your elementary school kid. What's one good piece of advice you would give to players about life? What he told him about life is that the law of average, uh, remember, it's not a principle, it's not a theory. Take it with you in whatever you do. And it's amazing how many kids said to me, it's amazing how, you know, he's an attorney or, you know, of course, he's a coach, that's obvious. But uh, he'd be the attorney, you know, or a doctor. It's amazing. They say it's amazing how much I remember in baseball. Of course, they remember a lot about stories and a lot about me personally, and a lot of funny things that happen. But for the most part, the advice is to take that law of average with you. And if you work hard and you, you believe in yourself and you believe in the people you coach, you're going to be successful. If you could have a conversation with any one person in the history of civilization, whom would it be and why? The guy that, and remember, I didn't rehearse this. The guy that I want to talk to is Jimmy Doolittle. Uh, Jimmy Doolittle was a World War Two captain, okay, and they took these B-25s, and they worked at getting them off aircraft carriers so they could get them off and get to Japan because Franklin Delano Roosevelt wanted to bomb Japan. 
Japan had never, ever had anybody on their soil. And, of course, we had Pearl Harbor, and we had to do something back. Well, they, they took 16 people, went, and they couldn't make it back. Can't make it back. In other words, you're going to run out of gas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, and you have to bail out or crash land, okay, in China. All right, and you've got to work back here, <laughs> you know, from to our aircraft carrier. Well, anyway, Jimmy Doolittle was 42 years old and, of course, had Doolittle's Raiders, and he took off with the first B-25, and uh, it was very exciting. I don't know, I like a lot about World War II. Uh, anyway, that would be a shocker for because I don't want to talk to Babe Ruth. <laughs> you know, I mentioned uh, Okaloosa Walton Community College now changed their name to Northwest Florida State, but their mascot is the Raiders, which is named after Jimmy Doolittle's Raiders. Sure. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the party you had, and that was awesome, and congratulations on it. And now that you're not coaching baseball anymore, as a coach, what would you like your players to have said about you? I would like them to say, you know, that uh, he worked real hard and he really cared. You know, he wanted to win. He, but he put the time in. Uh, he helped me in every way. He cared about me as a kid, as a student, and as a person, not just a bat or a pitching arm. Uh, yeah, I'd want them to. And most of the kids always uh, know that. Most of my kids graduated. Uh, you know, I got a high graduation rate. Even kids who play pro ball, you know, came back and graduate. Had a big emphasis on education. And, uh, you know, I was firm, fair, and consistent, and I want them to read the same way. And, uh, you know, we had a good time. And now we have a, to this day, you know, from 1984, we have uh, get-togethers, all right, and the community, and there's 10 guys or 12, and they bring their kids, and, you know, we cook out some hamburgers. So, you know, I'm still with the guys, and, uh, you know, now they're coaching their kids, youth league, and, you know, some of them that were a little older, you know, uh, you know they have the kids here, you know, or the kids in college, even if he's not playing. Yeah, I want to say he cared, and, uh, you know, he worked at it every day, every single day. Skip, we really appreciate your time this evening and uh, learned a lot. And uh, like we said, we were super excited to have one of the greatest all-time coaches in this game join us for the podcast. So thank you again so much. I just got to tell you, Coach, on behalf of not just baseball coaches, but all coaches, just thank you so much for the example you've set and for what you've done. And 100 years from now, when we're all gone, people are still going to be talking about Skip Bertman and the impact you had on college baseball and sports and how you changed the landscape of baseball. And I want to thank you for that, and I want to wish you and, and Sandy a happy early anniversary, and uh, hopefully we'll find a way to cross that soon. Thank you. Well, I hope so, Paul. Thank you, and thank uh, <laughs> you know, all your production team. All right, Coach. Have a good night. All right. Bye. Take care. Yeah, Paul, that was a great conversation with uh, Skip there. Really a lot of fun, and, you know, learned so much from one of the best coaches in college baseball. It's amazing. We, we said when we started this, we were going to do 15 podcasts in season one. And after getting someone like Skip Bertman on the phone, we realized we probably could have done 15 podcasts just with him. From the amount of knowledge he has, from the stories he has, from the advice and wisdom and direction he can impart upon our listeners is second to none. And, uh, you know, you think about it in the Mount Rushmore of college baseball, you might be able to argue about two or three of the other ones, but he's absolutely 100% on it. Amazing how humble and graceful he is. And you know, I kind of knew this 
a little bit, but to hear him talk about how he was involved in every single aspect of the program, from the recruiting to the coaching to the fundraising to making sure he sent people to the stand during the games to make sure that was running efficiently. We talk about everything he had to undertake as the head baseball coach of the program to develop that to where it became a giant college baseball. It was amazing the amount of work he had to put in. Absolutely, and I, I cracked a smile when he was telling us about the in-between and in-games that he had take place at the stadium, and he smiled at like a minor league baseball team, you know, working in minor league baseball. The most important thing is that fans are enjoying the product, not only on the field, but off the field, and to see that coach was trying to do that at that early, and you know, in the 80s at LSU, trying to rebuild the program, it really spoke volumes. Yeah, I totally agree. Thanks for listening to this episode. We thank Skip Burtman. And again, we'd like to remind you, at Bandbox Podcast is our Twitter handle. Please feel free to follow us, reach out to us, let us know anything you'd like to see us cover. We appreciate your listening. And for Corey Nido, I'm Paul McGloin, and we'll see you next episode.